You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and Tom the Bomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome to the show, and we are honored to have, I'm sorry to say, he does have one big flaw. <laughs> we, we have somebody here from re- retired in law enforcement, a friend of Tom's, but he's, I can't even believe I let him in my house, <laughs> but he's wearing this obnoxious purple hat with these crazy initials, LSU. You know, they think they know something about football because they got lucky one year. Oh, please. <laughs> but we're going to do a little hypnosis on him while he's here. I'm going to have him screaming roll tide before it's all done. Hey, Bama's the only one who plays their players more than us, so I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever works. Yeah, I'm, I agree. <laughs> you know, jealousy can be a really ugly thing. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to let you introduce our guest since you're the one who knows him. And is, apparently there's a lot of secrets here that I hope are going to be memorialized on this audio recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest today is Chuck Bridges. He's a retired law enforcement officer uh, here in the state of Arizona. And Chuck and I, we go way back. We were in the military together. Uh, we awesome. were both stationed out at Luke Air Force Base many moons ago. And Chuck got out before I did and got a job. And I got out several years later and ended up at the same department. And Now, did you both have the same MOS? Yep. Yep. We were both, both military police. Yep. Okay. Because yeah. I'm honored to be the stress coach out at Luke okay. for the 56 security forces. Okay. Yeah. Great yeah. bunch. Yeah. My son's out there. He's a EOD though, but he's stationed out there now too. He just made E7. Wow. Shane. Congratulations. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Shane was just a little one. No. You we remember, were, yeah. <laughs> when so, we were stationed. So together. do we have more blackmail material from the military days or the law enforcement days, or it's a good balance uh, of both? We're just going to let that be. <laughs> <laughs> Probably best for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Statute of limitations hasn't run yet. But, uh, is that what you're You never know what the military is <laughs> yeah, going to do. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know, buddy. Yeah. Okay, we'll just talk about the law enforcement <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so tell us why Chuck's here today. So Chuck and I were actually partners for a while uh, when we both worked in downtown on the um, bike squad for Tempe Police. And the night my last night that i was supposed to be partnered with chuck i decided to take off because i was getting ready to go to um, the traffic bureau to become a motor officer right and so that night um one of the sergeants rode with chuck and then chuck got into a shooting that night and so that's where we're here to talk about chuck's incident and how that all went down and what happened and And how things have changed how long have you been retired uh a little over two years. Okay. I did 27, almost 27. Wow. Okay. So, you know, and there's there's so much going on in law enforcement today, and it's pretty discouraging for everybody. It's got to be kind of a, I'm glad I'm out, and Tom's going, I can't get out fast enough. <laughs> Those 10 days don't go by fast enough. But, you know, that's one of the things, too, that I think we have to talk about, because the pendulum always swings. Right. I've been doing this 30 years. I don't think I've seen it as bad as it is now. But the pendulum always swings. We can't seem to find middle of the road in anything. No, no. And so tell us, tell us about your incident. Uh, so I'd been on, it was in 1999. I'd been on uh, about a seven years, but not a new cop, but you know, not, not, not an old salty, not salty by far, but uh, I'd been assigned to a bike squad for a little bit, not very short time. And uh, I was actually riding with Steve Smith, me and uh, Steve. Uh, Flintstone. We nicknamed him. Guy looked like Fred Flintstone. We nicknamed him Flintstone. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of stories with Flintstone with Steve. But well, uh, we can talk about those too. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, so I, I was a side. We were riding bikes, and uh, Steve and I were riding together. And uh, what a lot of people don't know about downtown, it was 1999. It was uh, March 19th. It's about zero zero thirty six in the morning. And uh, what a lot of people don't know about downtown Tempe, a lot of it's private property, even the roads and stuff. Though we have the ability really? when we have people that give us issues or something down there that from the downtown committee that we can trespass warn people then basically have them on a trespass or order out issued by the, the, the courts. And uh, they have a representative that's the, is for better lack of the words, the victim shows up in court and testifies for all the business owners downtown. Hmm. And uh, so Steve spots a guy, can't think of the young man's name now, but uh, spots a guy uh, just west of Mill Avenue on 6th Street 
that is on this order out. And Steve's like, hey, that guy's a 42, which is code for a 1042, which is he's going to be arrested because the guy's on it. So we roll up on this kid and young guy. And uh, we put hands on him and he gets a little, starts getting a little squirrely because like they always do, why he stopped me? And Steve knows him. He knows Steve. They have a rapport together, even if it's not a good one. But Steve's like, hey, <laughs> you're not supposed to be down here. We're hooking this guy up. Well, John, our sergeant at the time, who'd only been on the squad one day. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Calls us on the radio and uh, wants to meet up with us for 25. And uh, so we tell him where we're at. And uh, uh, he rolls up there. And there's three of us. And uh, if you've ever been downtown, so Mill runs north-south and uh, 6th Street runs east-west. And we're on the west side of uh, Mill Avenue. And it used to be a big, where Mikhail's is now, used to be just a big empty parking lot. And there's three electrical boxes. So we were kind of standing in a loose line between the prisoner and the three of us, kind of north to south. I was the furthest south. I was in the road. What we didn't see is uh, a white pickup drive behind us, driven by a guy named uh, uh, Brian Ball. I think it's his name, last name, Mr. Ball. And uh, <laughs> he drives by us, uh, gets out of the pickup and approaches us. Uh, I'm facing north. Uh, like I said, I'm the furthest south. I'm facing north. John, or then there's Steve. Kind of give you guys a picture in your mind. There's Steve and the uh, guy we just arrested. He's in cuffs. And then John's the furthest north on the sidewalk. Uh, this is probably where John, this I, this I probably, this I know. I always say this to this day, John and Steve saved my life probably, or did save my life. Uh, they say behind you, because you, Tom will tell you, and you, you know, you're in law, law, people always walking up to you, but you don't want nobody walking up on your six. And, right. uh, uh, so they say behind you. And, uh, so I turn around, I see this guy approaching me and he's close. And, uh, I tell this story. I've told this, told this story a lot, and I've done a podcast before, and I've done some. And used to go to the academy and stuff. I was a sergeant at the academy, but uh, it. I tell this story, and it seems like a long time, but this happened in seconds. Sure, like it's oh, it was it was fast and furious, and uh, so I see this guy over my shoulder, and immediately, spider sensors or whatever, something mm -hmm. says something's not right here, and. Uh, the guy's got a just a thousand yard stare, his teeth are clenched, and he's kind of got a robotic kind of movement to him when he's coming up on me and he's wearing a bandana with a leather jacket and uh something says, Turn meet, you gotta turn meet this guy. So as I turn, he produces a gun. I don't know if he pulls it out of his pocket, I don't know where it comes from. He shoots me in the back, on the back side, left side. Uh I take the I take the round, I know I'm hit, it spins me out in the street, uh spins me around out in the street, and I was I was a lot heavier then. I was probably you know, two thirty. I was a big guy. Yeah, you're wearing a vest. Yeah, I was wearing a vest. Took, I, but I didn't know I took it in armor. I took it in armor. Okay. But uh, he spins me around out in the road, and uh, as he shoots me, I th I think he fired twice. Uh, not sure till this day, but I thought he fired twice. Hits me one round, spins me out in the street. As I come out of there, then this this whole scene's kind of un unraveling in front of me. He continues to fire on John and uh, Steve. And uh, Steve's spinning, trying to—he's not only Steve trying to get out of the way, but he's also trying to protect the prisoner. He's got an arm wrapped around the prisoner and draw his gun at the same time. John's trying to draw his gun. Uh, the guy's on top of him now. Uh, we at first, when they said they asked me uh, how far did he think he shot you when he walked, I thought he's like 10, 15 feet. Couldn't find out he's like five feet away. Yeah. And uh, now he's in between us all, and he's and he's in, and we're in a gunfight. And uh, John takes around and goes down hard. Uh, right before that, I, I, I've already drawn my gun and uh, I got a sight lock, lock, sight picture on this guy, and I and I and I and I crank off the first round. And uh, I thought I missed. Couldn't find out I didn't miss, but I, I double along the guy. I went all the way through him, but it isn't like the movies. I always tell people this isn't like the movies. This guy kept moving. Yes, he just stumbled. I thought I missed though, but I hadn't because the guy was only like ten feet away, and uh, he's shooting. He's shooting into John and Steve now. Uh, shoots John once, takes a devastating round, goes down, can't get back in the fight. The whole time he's trying to get back in the fight, but he just can't. The round's too devastating. Steve's getting out of the way. Uh, I tell people all the time, I can see the muzzle flash. It looked like it was touching Steve. Well, now the guy's between, Steve's between me and the guy. I can't shoot anymore. So Steve manages to, as the guy goes down the sidewalk, now he's moving. He's moving. He was moving south to north. Now he's moving west to east. And uh, as he gets past Steve, now I have a clear eyesight, and then I just drop a hammer on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just start shooting the guy till he goes down. And I can see my rounds impacting him, and uh, he's just not going down. And uh, I shoot the guy all the way to – I tell people I shoot the guy all the way to the ground. Good. And uh, now Steve's in the gunfight. He's they managed to get his gun out. He's in the gunfight. Guy's down. Uh, when they first said, hey, you know, we 
I, I didn't have, I never, a lot of times, you know, in these situations, guys lose, they get tunnel vision, they lose a hearing, they, you know, they, all the, the, the auditorial stuff. I never, it was always, it, it was real time for me. The only thing after the first two or three rounds, I lost the hearing. I couldn't hear the, sh the shots going off, but I never, I never got the tunnel vision. I never uh, had the slow-mo that some guy, I think Steve said he had the slow-mo going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was all fast and furious and we estimated it. We fired 20 something rounds between the three of us, the bad guy and, the, and me and Steve. And, uh, uh, probably maybe five to 10 seconds, probably less than that. It was over. It was a fast and furious. <laughs> I, I, years <laughs> later, I saw this t TV show or movie where these guys got in a gunfight, cowboy guys got in a gunfight and the two good guys were all wounded and they're laying around. Everybody's laying around. And the guy was like, man, that was fast. And he goes, yeah, they were good. You know, it always reminded me of mine because it was, it was just fast and furious and it was over. And uh, we, like I said, we shot 20 something rounds in less than five seconds or less. And, uh, but here's something I want to ask. Cause actually you did, it sounds like have some level of tunnel vision thinking he was farther from you than what he really yeah. was would actually be. Right. Cause that's usually what we hear yeah. in these things. But the other thing is, how was your hearing once this was over? It was fine once it was over because me and Steve started communicating. Once a guy goes down, I said, he's down. I said, you got him. I tell Steve, you got him. He's like, I got him. I said, okay, I'm moving in. Yep. And I go in and I hand prone, prone, uh, prone handcuff the guy and then uh, uh, backed away. And uh, I drew my, I don't know why I drew my gun again. I drew my gun again. And, and uh, Steve comes over. He goes, you good? I go, I think I'm good. I said, I, I took it. He goes, you hit? I said, yeah, but I think I'm good. And I said, John's down though. So Steve goes to John. And then uh, that's when I, uh, and when we were in the academy together, or we were in the academy, it was about time uh, Tom went through, a little after I did, they used to play audios of guys being in shooties on the street. And di di uh, I don't even, uh, dispatch would come and talk about, you know, what you need to do on the radio and stuff. And I always remember, I can't remember the guy's name, he worked for Tippy, but he's screaming so loud into the radio in a gunfight that he's basically cutting himself out. He can't, they don't know what's happening. And uh, sure. So I remember thinking, take a breath. So I yeah. took a breath, yep. and then that's when I put out the triple nine and uh, asked for help. But uh, uh, and then that's when uh, Ross Thompson gets to me. He's the first guy to get to me, and he's yeah. like, "You hit?" And I said, I "Put my gun away." And I'm doing the, you know, I don't see any blood. I think I'm good. <laughs> and, uh, it's usually a good time. Uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, but you know, it shows too because if you actually went out on a range without ear protection. And that many rounds were fired that close. You'd have ringing. You'd have everything. Right. And it's, uh, I think this is something that Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, I have heard talk about, um, is how amazing the brain is in all of this and how it operates. Because right. the studies actually show that the anvil and the stirrup separate in situations like that. And it has to be tied to adrenaline because sure. it doesn't do it normally. But if you need to hear somebody, it goes back, but it protects you during that gunfight yeah, right and that's just the most fascinating thing to that me of is. how it can figure all that stuff out because you're right it is fast right it isn't like it's got a few seconds even to figure it out and uh, we have one guy that i'm pretty close to is now sheriff in arkansas and he actually was in a gunfight in the truck of his car shooting out the windshield at these guys and no ear protection and it's a rifle right <laughs> and he's taking ak-47 rounds no hearing issues at all, and you just go, "Wow, pretty fascinating." Yeah, yeah. Well, how was John? You said he took a pretty. So John, uh, our best witness was the guy that worked at Palapas. The door guy was it unfolded right in front of him, like you know, twenty feet away. The door, the bouncer, and uh, so what happened was when the guy opened fires, John turns to try to draw his gun, and this is what we think happened is that as he tries to draw his gun, his vest rises and he takes it around just underneath the vest, goes all the way through him, uh, severs an artery in there. Uh, goes goes down hard, and uh, what they did know because when fire gets there, and just happened to be there, just happened to be a video of all this, not of the actual gunfight, uh, of the aftermath because fire had just started. They had a dash mounted camera for some reason, wow. and uh, the battalion guy rolls up, and then uh, they get out, and somebody's carrying the camera now, and then they videotape the scene. But if you see John at the scene on the video, he's got his knees drawn up because he's in pain. Well, he fooled fire and fire come back to get fire to do. They come back and because most time when you got a gunshot with them, they scoop and they go. Well, right. they didn't scoop John and go. They because he was blood pressure was good. But what they think the way John was sitting that he was actually applying like direct pressure the way his 
knees were bent, was was yeah. playing his guts and stuff were putting direct pressure on that vena cava. Wow. And uh, uh, they tried to move his knees. He's like, "Don't move me." He's like, "That hurts too bad." So he, he left him like down the stretcher. Well, they took him twenty minutes to get him to the hospital. And when he got to the hospital, he pretty much coded when they got him in the emergency room. When they wow. laid him out flat, uh, doctor uh, that guy's name passed away not too long ago. Saved him and Tim. Uh, uh, Scott. But anyway, oh, we had yeah. a doc, we had one doctor at uh, Maricopa County that saved two of our guys. Wow. and uh, he, Not just our guys. He saved some other guys. But he basically reached inside and held onto the artery until yeah, they got him stable. And uh, John, you know, credits him with saving his life. Like, I credit John and Steve with saving mine. But uh, he could never come back from it. He, it was too, you know, it was too much of a wound. He couldn't come back and uh, had some issues. But he's doing great. Uh, uh, uh been a while since I've seen him, but last time I saw him, he looked good. He's doing great. He had a bunch of surgery, you know, fixed a bunch of stuff. Right. But, you know, that's another thing I always tell people about gunshot wounds. It's not like the movies where these guys are just plugging holes and, and, and going on. There's long-lasting. They're very devastating. Yes. And uh, uh, Yeah, TV it, has probably done yeah. a lot of disservice. But even then, that bad guy was dedicated. I tell people a hardened target, man. That guy was, you know, dedicated because, like I said, I I, I hit, I fired uh, seven, eight rounds, and I hit him all eight rounds. And, uh, uh and you know to put him down right. and uh but uh and that guy sucked he, him up man he i mean was he on was a mission. yeah he was on a mission and wasn't high uh he uh they did a you know always do the 24-hour thing on him and uh he had an ocular bac of like 3.6 and he was it was a he was a walking talking alcoholic but uh did you ever find out what his issue was the suicide bacaba thing he was a janitor at some apartment complex he got fired the day before mm. and the palo verde lounge down there off of broadway he'd been drinking in there all day and they drink so many white russians that they had to go out and get more milk to to come back and, and keep serving <laughs> that guy wow. and, he, and he did a lot of typical stuff of guys that are like you know want to commit suicide or it was yeah. he uh, bought the round but right before he left he bought that bar around and bought some chicken wings or something and they said where are you going and he said oh i'm gonna go get in some trouble and best place on a Late night, find a cop. These ones downtown mill. Right. We we had just talked about that too because uh, uh, the night before I almost got in a shooting and uh, with a guy on Mill Avenue with a, uh, a claw hammer. And uh, but we just talked about how after St. Patty's Day that it was dead down there, right. and uh, uh, we we broke the golden rule and we said dead. And that come back to, <laughs> yeah. that come back to bite us a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that come know, back to bite us a little bit. You don't you say were, it's calm yeah, today, right? Or yeah. it's quiet. Or quiet. Yeah. Don't say calm or dead. Never. No. <laughs> come back to bite us. But he's doing really good. John's doing. Uh, what I and a little side note: what we didn't know is, uh, you know, they always give awards out and stuff. And Tom will tell you, our old regime was totally different than the people now. I think yeah. police work has gotten a lot better, and I think the Police Department is a great department. They were always good to me. But initially, when we started, we had a pretty dictator tip type. Uh, command staff is sure. they're all, all old school cops and right. they were like our way or the highway well they didn't believe in giving out which I don't need an award we, none of us need nothing but what I didn't know about what John had done behind the scenes is they, they gave us like a life saving award or something but John was it, it upset John that Steve and I never got the meritorious service medal uh, so he what I didn't know what no none of us knew is that he was going behind the uh, command staff that, well he was going to each new chief mm-hmm. and petitioning so every time they got a new chief, when the old chief left, and the new chief would come in, so he got the riff, and riff said, "I'm not going to just give it to him, but I re- I will have somebody reinvestigate it, and if they if it meets the criteria, then we'll give it to him." So Tom Riff had Scott Smith reinvestigate it. They approached me and Steve. I got called to, you know, as you get called to the chief's yeah, office. That's never like, oh, good. Oh, no. And then they wouldn't tell me. <laughs> I kept calling the man. I said. Why am I coming to Chief's office? I said, I have, I've been, you know, I think I was working darks then. And uh, uh, what have I done now? Yeah. And she goes, All I'll tell you is just not bad. I go, Okay, that's good. I'll take that. So we get there, and, and that's when we find out that John had been going to all the Chiefs to have us represented with it. So they, and they had researched it and done and Let everything. me say this to you guys, and I get where you're coming from about the awards and stuff, but really and truly, the awards aren't just about you, they're about the family. Yeah. I don't think. And and obviously you're proving my case because were you married at the time? Yep. And she had no part in your receiving that award. No. And it, that happened one time with me, and I've never been more upset because it it was something that took Marshall away from us for long periods of time, holidays, everything. And I was even at the conference when the award was given, but they didn't invite me to the banquet. So it really has to be more about families and the sacrifices, well, too. Well, and let me back up. She, she, that initial meeting was just to tell us that they were going to award it to us. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I spoke. And uh, 
But the chief at the time was like, hey, we'll make a big production out okay. of this. Good. Or we'll just do something small. And me and both chiefs said, like, the department didn't even know. We're like, no, we just want to do something small. So basically, they invited us and the wife and the family Good. back to command staff, and they presented to us at command staff. And Because yeah. I said, I don't want, you know, we don't want any news. We don't want anything. Sure. And we just take it and, and go on, you know. <laughs> and I say that for officers to understand, because I think right. a lot of times you don't realize that this really isn't just for you. It's about your spouse, your kids, because sacrifices are made for y'all to do what you do. No. Yeah. And, and I agree. And I'll tell you what, Tempe, and, and I've been involved in three officers in a shooting, one where I was a shooter, one where I was the third guy in the door, and then one where I was the boss on the, the team making the entry. And uh, Tempe does a really good job with their peer support and everything. They were good to us. Like, uh, at the time, it was just me and Haley. We didn't have our boys yet. And, uh, like, they catered our house. They had food sent to our house and stuff and uh, where we didn't have to worry about it. And the, like I said, the peer support, one of the things that I have fought for a lot or made sure, especially since I was involved in two more, and it depends on sometimes your bosses are different, but I can't remember that guy who came from Mesa, that lieutenant over in CID, but uh, was there for a while. He was retired. But anyway, he, we get in, we get into that last shooting on uh, and that, 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 that search warrant, and he wants to start separating guys from the thing. And I threw a fit in the middle of the street. I said, we're not separating anybody. My team stays together. Good for you. And, uh. He was, you know, I was like, I didn't care. I had enough time on. I was like, I didn't care. But I was like, our team stays together. We don't separate our guys. And uh, yep. uh, I said, there's no reason. I said, we're all professionals here. Nobody's, you know, we're not coming up with stories. Don't you have know. to. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I said. It is what it is. So, but anyway, but Tempe as a whole does a great job as peer support. And because uh, immediately, like within a few days, we had a, a get together of everybody. Yep. And then, you know, then you break it down and start breaking down smaller elements of guys involved in just in the shooting. And eventually this gets to be the guys involved in the shooting come together. Because they did the same thing with me and Steve is. The problem is me, Steve, and John never got to do like a sit down together with a, a psychiatrist because yeah. John's injury was so bad. Right. He was in the hospital so right. long that it, and I, for me, I come from a military family. My dad's career military. Uh, you know, my mom was a, 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 grew up poor, was very strong, you know, in Louisiana and a, a very strong woman. So my whole thing was to get back to work. As soon as I get back to work, uh, it's better for me where John did better as Steve did better. Cause they were much closer. They were friends, but friends outside yeah. of work and stuff. And they were uh, much closer. So to me was to get back to work as fast as I could. It took me three weeks. Mostly it took me long, just that long to get a new vest. So, and, <laughs> and, 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 and get healed. I had it, you know, I, I, like I said, I took a round in the, in the armor just under the armpit and it was a, like a half inch from going over the armor. If it had gone over the armor, they said I probably wouldn't have survived. That I took it in the armpit through the heart. I said I probably would not have survived. So wow. that's why I say Steve and John saved my right. life. And, what kind of, you know, one of the things, because in law enforcement, law enforcement's known for giving a lot of stories about shootings and tactical situations and all that kind of stuff. But we're more focused at Under the Shield on the aftermath of these things. Right. Because I don't think people talk enough about them. So when somebody's involved in something and they're struggling afterwards, they think there's something wrong with them because they've never heard the stories. Oh, no. And the reality is, is pretty much everybody does struggle in some capacity. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Bob Johnson's uh, one of the best cops you'll ever kick a door with and a longtime <laughs> guy and uh, retired. He, uh, I learned a lot from him on the job, but he'd been in a few shootings. And so he was literally the first phone call I got mm -hmm. and uh, basically just to tell me that, hey, this is how it's going to go. And this is what's going to happen. You need anything? Let me know. And from there, I have passed that down. That too, so I took Good. that. So now, when guys were involved or ladies were involved in thing, I made sure I reached out to them personally. It would give them a few days because I know all the stuff's going on, like Bob did for me. So I took that up on me Good. to pass that down, and then I tell each one of them. Now, next time you reach out to somebody, and I did the same thing with Julie Warnyag and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, anybody, anybody's been in a shooting after mine and uh, reached out to them to say, "Hey, this is good. You know, make sure you talk to somebody or talk to anybody." And uh, the best thing that we could do in law enforcement is not only tell them it's okay, mm -hmm. but uh, I, to me, to bring together the peers that were there that night, you know, bring everybody together mm -hmm. to talk about it. Cause, you have to. Yeah, you absolutely have to because then that's when people get to, that's where they really understand it's okay, you know, and me mm -hmm. and Mike Coakley have been friends forever. And uh, See, and that's one thing that I struggled with because I wasn't on the shooting because right. I had taken that night off, but I get called, you know, like 3 o'clock in the morning and I, I don't remember who even called me now, um, but they said that all they said was Chuck's been in a shooting. Yeah. And so then, you know, I'm like, oh, crap. Is he all right? I wasn't yeah. concerned about anybody else at the time. You yeah. know, they just said Chuck. And then 
they said that you were okay. And then they told me about John and they told me about Steve being okay. And so I struggled with the guilt of why did I have to take that night off? I should have been there so that oh, I was there sure. with Chuck. You know? Oh, no. That was tough. Well, I had just left that midnight squad where it was me and Mike and uh, John Ferris yeah. and Laird and all those guys. We've yeah. been together for years. And uh, that was a fun one squad. Of things, yeah. Well, and we were, and we were, and we, we thought we were the bomb, you know, we were ripping a terror. We right. thought we were, the, you know, we always say bag of chips, but because uh, we were young and dumb. But uh, uh, one of the things that Steve and, you know, who's not, you know, he, he's, he's a funny guy, and John and those guys will tell you. So you'll hear on the video, you'll hear on the recording when uh, or the, the you know, 911 from that night. And uh, so Bob Johnson just ends up being the supervisor on scene. Well, I tell people there were so many police cars that you know when you put out a triple nine, that's that's a that's another whole ball game. Yeah. I, I've only yep. done it. I've only done it once. I never want to do it again. <laughs> and uh, but I said it's a good it's a good feel to hear them sirens yep. coming. This hear the city light up. Right. Yeah. Uh, yep. To hear that city light up and hear them coming. And uh, did it seem like forever before they got there? Though no, nah, not really, because I got some guys there pretty quick. But yeah. John and Steve and them guys were saying because Bob Johnson comes on the radio, you'll hear him say, "Everybody, not twenty three, which means you're not on scene. Go ten eight, stop." And Steve and those guys on that squad were like, "Nah, that's not happening. We're coming. Right. We're coming." Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> sorry, I, bad connection. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things I remember that night are the uh, the old Caprices who had them big Corvette engines yeah. in them. They uh, you could hear them. I, I don't know why I remember this, but you could hear them pinging they were they were cooling down guys were hauling yeah. ass to get there i mean that's what i remember the ninja because like i say it was just the street was full all the way out the mill fire had to park out on the mill and walk in <laughs> wow and uh <laughs> but uh you can hear those engines pinging as they cooled down yeah, and i don't know why i remember that it just sticks out in my yeah. head and you know mike uh said the same thing uh because he was down in the jail and uh, had a, a 40 uh, prisoner for narcotics had to strip search him and uh he hears me kick out that triple nine, and he can't come, and it bothered him yeah. too. Yeah, he, I have to know what happened to the guy you initially stopped. So, <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting. And I, I said, I went, I'm hoping there are a lot of civilians that listen that don't know a lot about law enforcement, because when you're telling the story, you're saying, I think you said Steve was protecting, had his arm around right. the had guy. A, that's what he did. He hooked his him. arm, put him from yes. the behind him because he's in cuffs. Well, the funny part about that is, is the guy's a suspect, but now he's a victim too. So right. he still got arrested, <laughs> and uh, he still got arrested, but he was a victim in our, on, our, on the other side of that. But because the, the funny part is, uh, Dave Breen comes up and he's like, "Do we kick this guy loose?" And Cage is like, "No, don't kick him loose." Yeah. Cause, I cause, bet he never committed another and, crime uh, though. After witnessing, well, you know, we never saw him again after that. that you know, but, that uh, was the end of his career. But uh, <laughs> it, the funny part about it is that guy. They caught him coming out of the jail the next day after he got released, and somebody, some reporter, was talking to him. He's acting all nonchalant. I was like, "No, you weren't the night before. You didn't know whether you'd been snake bit or powder burn." I'm like, "That guy was in such shock, man. He just like I was just in the middle of a gunfight and did get shot. Yeah, you know, like what and the I hell he, just happened?" And I hope he was positive about the police. Uh, I don't. I, yeah, he just not, disappeared. But- yeah, but he just—he's one of our local uh, mill rats, so he just disappeared. I don't—I don't think we ever saw him again or heard from him again. So, <laughs> but you, what you're talking about too is the the concept of pulling everybody together. You know, my team in Alabama, um, a peer sport, and we do things very different there than here. We don't do in house. Um, there's some trying to do that, but the reality is, is we don't let our peers go into the same county where they work. Because, again, it just makes it safer for people to speak freely. But if you don't put everybody together, it's all one big pie. And and each person has a different piece to it. Right. And the brain tries to plug in what they think happened. Mm-hmm. And if it's not correct, it's hard to heal from those things. So you need to 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 make those things happen. Yeah. And, and I and totally like my wife is a retired cop, like I say. So she she been through and and, she, and bless her soul, you know, because I did all this crazy shit. You know, she was she was you know she did too. She was a detective and did all this other stuff. Was she and also at the same department? Same department. Okay. Met on the job and uh, you know and uh, plus you know like I said, I always say because I was always out running, you know, working dope or doing SWAT or doing something crazy, and getting called out, and so she was always you know picking up the slack a lot of times at home with the so boys. So he's telling and, us he's a true adrenaline junkie, is yeah, what he's a little saying. Bit. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, th- and that explains my oldest boy. You know, he's been doing the three combat tours now, and I keep saying to him, and, and, my, and my wife just looks at me and goes, "It's your fault." It, that's you right. Know, it's your that's fault. It. You know, he's fall far from the yeah. tree. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> that's it. Anyway, but uh, she started a a peer support program for the spouses Good when she retired. Yes. So, and I think she actually copied it from Chandler and, uh, started a, oh, yeah. the team 905 concept. Right. She yes. heard his partners in crime. She yep. called it partners in crime. Yep. 
and uh, she she ran it the whole time when she was still on the job and then and then while I was still working, she was still ahead of it. And then when I retired, she stepped down and let the younger ladies take it over. But uh, is it still going? It's on? still going on. Yeah. And uh, Chief Moore actually uh, uh, reached out to her before she retired, you know, and basically wanted to make sure it kept going and, and it's still going. It's, and it's a good connect and, because that's the other side of it. That's what you're talking about. That's the other side of the family, yes. you know, now because we always talked about the coppers, you know, not right. more. But we never did really take in that family side because mm-hmm. the wife, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the husband, because you know, whoever the partner is, is dealing with it and uh, has yes. to deal with the same shit. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lot on the family, you know, the kids and everything too. So the archaic principle in the academies of keep personal and professional separate. Again, it's being taught still today. It just makes me laugh. And then we wonder why divorce rates are as high as they are and everything else is going on. Um, but I think the fact that your wife would start that, group partners in crime what possessed her to do that was there something that didn't happen in your event not so much it didn't happen in my event i think she was thinking about the spouses about how they kind of get left out even mm-hmm. she was included because she was an officer on the pd so she was obviously included but a lot of times the concept the focus is on the officer that's involved in the uh critical incident, whether it be, you know, something that happened, you know, a shooting or something else that happened, like the kids that went into the lake, mom drove into the lake, right? all yeah. that, it's still going to affect the family members and, you know, it affects your kids. And we didn't have any kids at the time. Lucky it was just me and her. And uh, before we started having kids, but, uh, how did she find out? I called her. Oh, you did? <laughs> <laughs> on a StarTech cell phone. I remember that too. Uh, and the only guy I think on the PD that had one was the first guy to get to me. And he whips out this little StarTech telephone. He like, he do he do he dialed the number. He's like, here, talk to Haley or, you know, whatever. <laughs> let and her know you're let okay. Let her know you're okay before she hears it for somebody else, you know? And, uh, and we've had a couple incidents since then, especially with technology now where the wife, yes. girlfriend, partner, husband, or whatever has found out about the incident through social media or something. Or the news media. Yeah, or yes. the news media right. before PDs ever got in contact. So that was the driving force too was, Hey, let's, bring something together a private page or a private uh, you know organization where we can you know get information out and disperse it amongst ourselves as Mm -hmm. the spouses or the loved ones and they're not getting this they're getting it firsthand and they're not getting uh bad information and we had like i said we were solving a dirt one dope warrant one time where we got in a gunfight and uh, my guys did a great job but the two guys involved uh, literally, their one of them's wife heard about it before it got uh, a thing, and you know it was, and, and that's when I think they had first started partners in crime, and mm-hmm. it wasn't quite hashed out and hammered out the way it was a thing, you know. So that was a learning lesson for them, and they took it and they learned from it and they moved on. And since then, it worked, like she's still involved, and like something goes down, she gets all the you know text messages, and they start. You know, they can have a couple of people designated that, you know, hey, we're going to find out much of Rachel can. We're going to disperse that to the, the rest of everybody else. And and if if somebody on there is involved, loved one or somebody's involved and they go one on one with them, you know, they either call them or go contact them right. and they, they get the information to them like that. It's something they don't put out on social media, obviously, the, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we advocate for uh, because this is what happened with us. <clears throat> and uh, it was one of the things DEA did. I don't know if they still do it or not. But they sent the emergency contact form home for me to fill out. And I, I think the ex was a little bit offended, like, why, why the heck she got to fill it out? And I was like, because you ain't going to be notified. Uh, you know, I'm the one. And I'll tell you what it did. First of all, <laughs> true or not, it made me feel like I was a part of the process and somebody cared what I thought. Right. <laughs> and then second, I didn't have to worry every time a marked or an unmarked car pulled up in my driveway because right. I knew who it was because I picked them. And he knew, don't just drop by the house if Marshall's working. And so to me, it kind of took a lot of that fear out. And again, made me feel like somebody cared what I thought, because again, I'm the one that's going to be notified, not him. And that can be a really difficult time for both of you, I'm sure, that have notified families, not necessarily law enforcement, but families. I need to know who, they need to know who. Who I'm comfortable with, right? And I tell you, a really good thing that they've done with the the spouses support group too is they come together. It, the PD does their thing, and I've t- said it before in this interview. Tippy took, I think, does a very good job in those in those instances of taking care of their officers. I've yet to, you know, see where we've you know 
ousted somebody or put somebody on the outside or something or done something that we shouldn't do as far as not help them. Mm-hmm. But uh, like they come together, the wives and partners and boyfriends and, you know, cause we have female officers too, you know, that have sure. uh, that are married to guys that aren't in the, on the job and uh, you know, they do, you know, meal chains yes. and they come together babysitting, you know, they do all this stuff and, uh, and, and help each other out, right. you know, and, you know, look after kids and stuff like that. So it, it, that's a big thing too. You know, mm-hmm. it, that's just, that's a help. So, you know, Having going through this time, you know, you don't have to worry about making a meal. You know, you got a meal showing up, one or two meals a day showing up. Yeah, Tempe's real good about that. Um, when whenever we have any type of critical incident, who's ever involved, they go out of their way to try to, you know, peer support mainly does that to try to start some type of a food train for them. So, at least a week or two. So know. the partners in crime, they'll do that also. They'll do that also. But yeah. Tempe, the PD itself, like Amy Wilcox, and, and uh, uh, used to be in charge of the big time right. peer support, and she did a lot of that. She did. She was very, and like said, spearheading as far as like getting together. She was always running the groups so the beers come together and let's hey let's talk about this incident and. Because me and her were button heads, I think I said it earlier with this lieutenant out of CAD, and uh, and uh, I was, you know, I was ready to to have a fit, and uh, I was old enough and been on long enough, I didn't care. So and, uh, <laughs> I don't think he liked the way I talked to him, but that's all right. And uh, but anyway, they, but it's just you know you got it, and I think we've done a better job as you know we have to evolve. Yes. As a PD, yes. as law enforcement, military, mm-hmm. all that together, we have to evolve and and know that it just like with our equipment and how we handle situations especially you know now the big focus is on emotionally disturbed people you know we got to change we got to we got to we got to you got to got more tools in the toolbox this we have on our bat and same thing with mental health sure and uh yeah the uh and helping these guys out ladies out you know and and i you know all my family's been in the military i've been in the military my all i got two sons in the military you know so they're the same way you know and i got one of them's been three tours of combat you know and you know, as a bomb guy and uh uh you know, he knows enough that, like, he would never talk to me about when he's on, on the, uh, about what he was in country. He would never tell me about all the stuff he's doing. Now, I wouldn't learn about the stuff he was, and he was still a little bit because he knew I worry so much. Sure. He knew I worry so much, you know, so, but. But looking back, and again, law enforcement, this is something I find that they're not real good about, and that is really opening up to change and suggestions oh, from outside the PD. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not going to get out here and teach all how to put bombs together and take them apart. I. I mean, I guess they make they have one of those bomb making for dummies. I could try that, but <laughs> but I think that the departments have to get better about letting those of us that in a specialty field of mental wellness, specifically dealing with first responders and families and military, um, need to be a little more open. Looking back at your critical incident, especially the shooting itself, what could have been done different? in the aftermath that they didn't do? Uh, you know, I, 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 can't, I really can't, I'm speaking from my instance, just the one, the first one, then uh, uh, they did everything right. I thought at the time, you know, what we had and what we knew and what we, at the time, what we were dealing with, you know, because mm-hmm. this is in 1999. So, you know, we didn't have, a, uh, you know, the technology. We had the technology, but it wasn't quite as what it was now, but, or the resources, but with the with the with the resources they had, they did a good job. I mean, they did a real good job. That was the first time, and, I, and I'm gonna tell you that was the first time as I, that I ever heard of where like they catered the house, like I said, they took care of the meal plan. That we came together as a group within a day. The people that were involved and close, you know, either a they were on scene that night, and then like I said, the squad that I had just came from because it affected these guys. Even though these guys weren't there, and I'd left that squad for like a couple of days now, they uh, they were still affected by it, and they came together. And uh, that How about was, media coverage. Media was good to me. Were they or good to all of us, three of us? But let me say all three, not just to me. They were good. Even the fa- so I had an anomaly. I had the family sent us a letter as, oh, as as officers sent us a letter and said they mourned the loss of their son, but they respected our right to defend ourselves and wow. do what we had to do. They never once spoke bad about the police. Now, we all know that ain't how this goes. Right. Nine no. out of ten times, it's out of the way. They're choir boys all of a sudden, and uh, they, 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 could, they couldn't do no wrong. But uh, his family, yeah, it's just how long was they pinned the letter and mailed it to the city, and uh, I still have a copy them. of it. I still have a copy of it. And uh, see uh, what the PD used to do, and I don't know if they still do this. They probably don't. It's a book. It's a binder. They don't do binder. I don't think. I don't think uh, uh, homicide guys do binders anymore. But uh, it's all on the computer. <laughs> but I think we used to call them death books back in the day. And uh, uh, but uh, I, 
at the time they gave us all each one of us a binder of the investigation so everything they hit copies of so we have that and uh like i had so when i go to the academy i've been in a minute but back when i would they would I'd get asked to come because there's been so many guys now you know back and like i said it was it really wasn't was it? It, no, was a, it wasn't, wasn't a lot of shooting, so yeah. I got asked to talk about this, and sure. I went to Chicago to the IPMA because I was on the I was on, on downtown bike squad in Chicago, the International Police Officer Bike Association. Yeah. It was like two weeks later, three weeks later, they were having their national whatever, and they reached out to the city, and they're like, "Hey, can we have the two guys that survived come down here to Chicago? We'll wow. pay for it and uh, speak." And uh, so we went out there. Me and Steve went out there and talked about it, and. Uh, and no issues from attorneys about no. the fact that this case had not. Even no, really you know, I, you know, I think back now, you know, it's funny because yeah. I thought about that years later. I was like, I was kind of surprised, you know, because you know how tight, tight white right. tippies usually is, tight my lip they are, and and uh, they didn't. No, they sent us out there, and they had no issue us going out there and uh, uh, talking about it. And uh, uh, but the media was, you know totally different than it is now right. you know no and and it was pretty cut dry that's why i always say you right. know people there you know he shot me first so screw him you know yeah. so and uh uh but uh it was pretty cut dry but it, the biggest thing is like i said it just didn't happen a lot now it happens so much you know right that the media is picking i think they cherry pick what they want to if it looks kind of bad they make it look you know because sure yeah. you know all that all that crap sells they want to sell time anymore, right but, they want to sell time yeah they want to yeah. sell time airtime well, and i ask that because there are departments around the country that they're even hesitant for peer support oh, no. to talk to them. And you're going, I, I, I've heard horror stories, you know, when I was in narcotics and we'd go to training and stuff, undercover training and stuff, and they would talk, believe it or not, uh, the, uh, I can't take that guy's name. That teaches, he's an, he's a, he's a uh, retired ATF guy that goes around and teaches an undercover class, but they talk a lot about, you know, working deep undercover, you know, the guys that did that are working a lot of undercover mm-hmm. and then there's peer support and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, you hear stories about how PDs treat people, and I'm just like, holy crap, I can't yeah. believe she got treated like that. Like, they had a case one time where they had an undercover, they had a serial rapist, and it wasn't his department. I can't even, I wouldn't even think to try to tell you the name of the department, but she uh, told her not to carry a gun. They, like, you know, did a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have done. They lost sight of her, and she ended up getting raped by this serious rapist, and uh, they caught him, obviously, but they, like, treated her like she was her fault. And you start hearing, like, the aftermath, how they treated her, and, like, they didn't want her, you know, and it, it caused a lot. Like, she ended up retiring, you know, quitting the PD over it, you know, because of the way they treated her. You hear those kind of stories. They're still oh, yeah. out there. I oh, mean, yeah. there's still these, these PDs that, you know, it's our way or the highway, and, and you know. Was Charlie Fuller? Charlie Fuller. <laughs> Love that guy. I know, Charlie. We actually talked about even writing a book together one time. We I talked together. And, but I wouldn't trust him around my wife. <laughs> well, it, it's so funny because I taught before him. And some of the things that I taught of things that they should do, you could see the guys kind of rolling their eyes. Man, Charlie Fuller got up there and said the exact same stuff I said. And they're all like, oh, man, he's God. You know, yeah. whatever he says. And I'm like, seriously, assholes? <laughs> he, has, he, guy, he has some stories. Yeah, that guy should write over. They should make a movie about that guy. They some really of the undercover should. stuff he did. That's like a cert, that Serpico back in the day, man. Yeah, he was, he was Talking something about having else. a holster made inside his boot so he could carry a backup gun. You know, carry his gun in his boot. He had a holster sewed in there. You know, it's like the way he came up with stuff. Because we didn't know. You know, right. back when he was a undercover guy, we just didn't know anything about it, sure. You, know, you learn sure. from mistakes, <laughs> and they did. What would what kind of advice did you give to the new ones when you spoke at the academy? I told them don't be scared to ask for help. That's the biggest thing. Don't, don't be scared to ask for help. We're not, you know, they we got all this stuff on our bat belt and uh, we get all this training and uh, but we really don't back then. We didn't talk about it afterwards, but Mm-mm. don't be scared to ask for help and don't be scared to talk to your family or your friends and. And, and it goes back to what you're saying about separating, because I remember my sergeant, Sergeant Gronefeld from Phoenix PD, I think he's a commander over there now, but great guy. But I remember him saying, you know, don't have, don't have all your friends in the PD, have friends outside of PD, which yes. we do, but let's face it, I'm blood and sweat with guys and gals on the street. Right. We're going to become close. We're going to right. bond. We're going to do stuff together. We're it's gonna hard hang not out. to do stuff with them. Right. They told us not to do right. that. Like back in the, that was in the 90s, early 90s. They're sure. like, don't do stuff. But that's, not, that's unrealistic. Any... Yes. Unit cohesive, cohesive mm-hmm. unit that works together, does things together. It's, yeah. it's just not going to happen, you know. It's it's not, and uh, so, but you can't be afraid to talk to those guys and talk to other people too, or reach outside that circle. Sure, and go to a professional like yourself or somebody, and 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 for peer support because if you hang on to that man, that's baggage, man. It kills your soul. It it will it will definitely run you down, and you know it's heavy. So, 
that's why I would tell them. I said, you know, take all the training seriously, train as much as you can, uh, but work, take care of the mind too, you know. And, you have and, to. Uh, yeah. And I, I always say my dad was retired, mil was career military. My mom was a very strong woman. My sister was a lawyer, very strong woman. And, you know, it, it, a strong mental, you know, a foundation is a good thing too, you know, because we had to do everything on our own. My dad expected me when I turned 18, either A, go to college or A, go in the military because you ain't staying here, you know, so, <laughs> you know, and, you know, nowadays, you know, kids stay home to their 20 something years yeah. old. I'm just like, in their 30s, they're yeah, in the basement exactly. playing yeah. video games. And, and, and that teacher own, I'm not down, I'm not calling anybody out on that. I'm just saying teachers own. I just could, you know, my boys, they've all known and, like, you know, Got to work. You got to, you know, but I think it builds a foundation for them that if something does happen, if they've got this strong background, family background, it, you know, if something does happen that they can deal with it a little better. Right. And I'm no professional. I'm not an expert, but I know like for me, like I said, getting back on the job, getting back, get to work was my way of saying, hey, that guy didn't win. I won. Yes. You know, I got back out there. And and I think the parents are another group. And I'm glad you mentioned your parents because, you know, I'm, I'm the proud mom of a Marine who's yeah. served his time and he's out now. But he wasn't married, so I've always felt a little bit kind of like mom got left out of stuff, you know. Uh, how about your parents in this? Did they were they local? No, no, they still live in that time. I think they were still living in Louisiana. My dad, uh, or nothing. My, my dad, my dad, pretty much got the same job. He's from Columbus, Mississippi, at the Air Force Base there, and he got he literally the same job as civilian he was doing in the military. So he retired a second time. But I think they were living. Matter of fact, they were living in Mississippi. But, uh, did you get to call them or something? Oh yeah, else no, called I called them. I called them and told them, but mm -hmm. I, you know, and, uh, my dad, you know, he's like, okay, I'm glad you're good because I didn't expect anything less. You know, you did what you're supposed to do and, you know, just keep your head up and, you know, my, my mom's like drive on, you know, so that, you know, that's, <laughs> kind of, that's just the way they are. They're like, you know, sure. Hey, you got to keep moving. You know, my mom, she'll tell you, you know, she grew up with uh, the daughter of a, a poor sharecropper, you know, uh, descendants of sharecroppers and stuff in Louisiana, you know, pick a cotton. So they had it rough and, no time to, you know, sit around and feel sorry for yourself, but a little different times now, but I didn't, you know, I, first time I ever had any uh, contact with mental health, you know, working on, you know, talking to somebody, a psychologist and stuff like that. And I was fine with it. I didn't, I didn't bat an eye when they're like, you want to go? I'm like, absolutely. I'll go talk to them, you know? So mm -hmm. I didn't, it, it didn't bother me. Right. And I think that's kind of where that stigma comes from. People don't want to open up. They think there's something uh, bad behind it and it's not it's, it's just it's absolutely it's not that's the biggest message i want to get out there talk to somebody get some help talk to somebody you know and uh and hey, you can't bottle all that stuff up it'll yeah. tear you up yeah you yeah. can't it, you can't hold it in because it will like i said eat away at you so and how much. long were you off three weeks and is was that tempe policy no or? that was just me to get a new vest and my side to heal up a little bit because okay. I, I still had that blunt force trauma and i got a picture somewhere i don't know how long ago and like from my armpit down to my hip, it's like this nice big purple yellow, that ugly yellow bruise looking thing. And yeah, that was a pretty, yeah, pretty good bruise. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I was going to University of Phoenix at the time and I got my math teacher to figure out uh, like the point, the, like the pounds per square inch where that round hit me. And oh, geez. Uh, so she did this math problem and we kind of guessed a little bit, but she's like, the way I got it figured out, you know, based on the round and how much it weighed, you know, we think it weighed and the velocity it was traveling. You had like 2,200 pounds per square, you know. PSI hits you right there because a lot of people, and that's the other thing, you know, everybody's like, Oh, you took it in the armor. Yeah. But I actually had a bleeding gash in the underneath that armor from the blood force trauma. Sure. Right. You can and break I, a rib. Yeah. That. And they thought I had broke a rib, but I hadn't. And, uh, uh, like I was wearing the, the old block black cotton t-shirts we used to mm -hmm. wear underneath there. And, uh, like my wife she, for the next couple of weeks, she's picking, you know, threads of that t-shirt out. It would come to the surface of, you know, it got buried in there. So, but it, it, that was me. I was chomping at the bit to go back. I was like trying to, they were like, don't come to the office. They're like, don't come in. You know, I was like trying to come up there. They're like, no, don't come in. And they're like, wait, you healed. And so, and then I got a new vest. And as soon as I got a new vest, I'm like, you know, calling my sergeant. I'm like, I got my vest. I'm coming back to work. And he's like, all right, come back to work. And, you know, so. Well, and there was a, a doc, I guess it's a documentary for better lack of a word. Um, that the FBI did out of San Diego with a lot of officers in shootings and deputies over there in shootings. And the title of it is called Don't Call Me Killer. And I know we've had several officers that have been in trainings and stuff that have said when they came back, that was one of the first things that people on the job would oh, walk up to yeah. them and say, Hey, killer, how's it going? Nah, I never you had, ever had any yeah, of that. No, I never, I, I never had any of that. And I'm glad I didn't because I wouldn't have liked it either. No, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, and there hadn't been but a couple guys on the PD at the time that had been involved in 
and, and shoot Bob Johnson right. and me. I mean, I, that's, I, that's pretty, like I said, it was, it just didn't happen. And, uh, uh, a few others and, uh, uh, Prusnia, but yeah, I think sometimes people don't know what to say. Yeah. And in this industry, you do, you use a lot of sick humor. So they think they're being kind of funny or cute. Sure. Did, did you find though that people kind of shot away from you because no, they didn't know what to say? This is one of the things Bob Johnson, and I keep bringing him up because he's a great cop. And like I said, best guy I ever went through a door with. And, uh, Worst, uh, worst guy to have your red man though. Oh yeah, he break your jaw. <laughs> uh, strong, strongest man I ever met. I mean, pound for, I was a lot bigger than he is, and he was stronger than I was. But uh, the uh, he said he told me, and that's one of the things. A piece of advice he gave: people are going to treat you different. Yeah. He said the people because they're not going to know how to act. You know, you just killed, shot, and killed a guy, and then they're not going to know how to act. And uh, sure, he said they're not sure. You know, and 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 I did. I didn't see a lot, not with my close friends, but with people laying around. You know, uh, 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 not close to me. For say not in my immediate squad or whatever, but uh, uh, Jim Peterson, uh, uh, he uh, always told me, you know, he said the night before. I think I told you, I said it earlier. I almost got in a shooting the night before, and uh, and it was my first night on bikes. And uh, he was joking that night. He goes, he goes, man, I've been pissed off. You come down here one night and shot a guy, you know, and got three days off or something, and then, <laughs> and then the next night I shoot, and kill, I shoot, and kill a guy, and get shot, and uh, he comes like comes up like with his hat in his hand he's like you know i was just fucking kidding right he goes, I, he goes no way that i want to jinx you you know it was like that that thing you jinxed right. it you like, know oh, and he's like you know I, I said jim i never thought you meant it i'm like we didn't know that was gonna go down but it bothered him because again it goes back to that it's not just you it affects everybody right. it affects everybody around you you know so well it was interesting because one of the most valuable lessons i learned as somebody who responds mcso calls me out on all their shootings and stuff and uh but i learned it from lieutenant colonel dave grossman made me mad but years ago i had a client i was working with who had been in a fatal shooting in uh alabama and he'd been struggling with some stuff and we we just couldn't seem to quite get to it and he wanted to meet dave and dave happened to be coming to tuscaloosa to teach or speak and um i'd called dave and talked to him ahead of time about it told him what was going on he said yeah i'd love to meet him and uh, the officer walks up to Dave, and the very first thing out of Dave Grossman's mouth is he reaches out his hand, shakes his hand, and goes, congratulations on a job well done. And, and it, I mean, it was like a healing moment from God or something. And I was like, seriously, uh, that's what needed to be said. And the impact of that, though, because it's true, it was a job well done. Um, you went home. The good guys went home. That's, yeah. that's the whole point. And I've used that in several shootings. And it's funny because the reaction is that of almost shock in the beginning. And then it's like, there's not a but to it. You know, that she's saying, we we did a good job. You know, and it's it's funny that you said that because I'd never heard the story, obviously. But uh, the third time when my guys got, we got serving that warrant, got in the shooting. And the two guys that we were dealing with that had some issues afterwards. And uh, not only individually, but towards each other mm -hmm. it was, uh, and and uh one of the things i told one of them was uh, it you did a good job yeah you need to deal with it you did a good job you did what you had you had, had to do i said they almost the exact same thing i said you did a good job and and uh go from there but i said if you need to talk to somebody you need to talk to somebody and they both did they eventually both worked it out and and, and now you know one of them's a lieutenant i think now and uh one of them's uh, uh still doing a great job so they're still on the job and they're still you know kick out there kicking doors and, and taking names so it, it, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Cause I'm, I always be Tom. I always, I never thought I'd be the old timer, you know, but I came on in the nineties <laughs> and you know, you'd think I'd be setting, especially if you look at me, you know, tattooed up and big beard. And I said, you know, you think I'd be set in a certain kind of way, you know, I would be, you know, you know, I'm no pansy or whatever, you know, kind of cause in that era where we, we right. came from, that's the way it was. Tom exactly. Matthew and all those guys, yep. command sergeant, state of it, suck yeah. it up buttercup, you yep. know, but like I said, I learned quickly, you know, we got to evolve. And one of the things is, and for me, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it helped me, you know, be stronger. I think. Sure. Asking for help. Sure. And then, you know, relying on my wife and relying on my friends and my friends on the PD and friends, you know, my family and stuff like that. Cause I knew I could. And mm -hmm. I think that, 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 that happens with some, uh, guys and gals is they maybe not have this family support that they, that, right. that, that mm -hmm. some of us have. Right. And I think that's a big where, you know, they don't have it, but. Yeah, I don't worry about the ones that come through the door. I worry about the ones that won't. Yeah. And the ones that won't ask for help. Um, exactly. Because, again, it, you're human beings. I know we try to make you not that. Right. But the reality is you are. 
my concern for nowadays is that there's such negative stigma with law enforcement. It's going to almost make people pull back in their shell even more after anything. Oh, I believe you. I I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I get asked that question a lot because I'm retired, you know, and what do you miss that? I go, fuck, absolutely. I miss it. I said, you know what, if I, A, I had so much fun with DEA and and Haida that if they told me how much fun I would have, I I tried to pull my drop back. They wouldn't let me take my drop back because I was having so much fun over there. Here, take this money back. I said, can I I get out of the drop? They're like, no, you can't get out of the drop. They're like, you you saw the line. You're the drop. You can't get out of the drop. I'm like, I don't want to, I would still be working. I I tell people this all the time now. I'll be 60 next May. I said, I'd still be working. And, uh, because I was having so much fun over there. But I miss it. I absolutely, I miss the people right. more than freaking anything. I miss yeah. it. And my wife will tell you the same thing. She don't miss the domestic calls, but she likes the hot tones and she missed the, miss the people. And and my wife turned, trained, when she retired, she trained 35 police officers for the city of Tempe. Wow. And uh, they all, she always, because she was older, she always called, you know, it was a family. She treated them like family. She right. always said they were yep. my kids. And they would introduce herself as as Haley's. They're like, she's our mom. and uh, Or they was like, you're <laughs> so, my sister or my brother. Yeah. Because that's the, way she, that's the way she treated them. Yeah. She, she wanted them to be family. She sure. didn't want them to, and I think that helps a lot of them, you know, yeah. like that. So. Well, and I understand that, that, concept of the fun you were having because i've told my ex-husband many a time i don't miss you but i sure miss your job because <laughs> there was a lot oh. of fun stuff that went on if somebody told me 1992 we were wearing top will tell you we were wearing chloroform shoes polyester pants shirt everything glittered shine chloroform <laughs> belts you know everything had to be split shine that 27 years later i'd be in the desert wearing multicams on a razor chasing backpackers across the arizona desert you know for drugs and stuff i'd have been like ah you're full of this never gonna happen you know you know with high altitude aircraft night vision and stuff i i had a blast I yeah. said, like i said tippy was good to me i'm glad i got to do that detail and bunch and work dope and stuff but uh yeah it's changed but again we evolve we move on you know right. and and uh do a better job. Hopefully we do a better job. We get better and better. That's all I hope for, for I the hope young so. guys, young guys and gals out and, there. And especially from a safety standpoint. And yeah. we just have to do a better job in the academies on mental wellness and not labeling it too much toward mental illness. Cause that's really not what it is. Y'all, y'all are batshit crazy. I mean, there's nothing. If you wrote out your job description and the salary, even though out here, Y'all make really good money yeah. out here compared it's, to the South. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, if you wrote out the full job description, there's absolutely nothing in that job description on a piece of paper that would make people go, hot oh, damn, yeah, let's go do that job for no yeah. money. And we put all this money into these young guys and gals and, you know, to train them and do, teach them all these specialties and stuff like that. Why wouldn't we do everything we can as a PD, if I was a chief, it made me king for a day as a chief, I would do everything mental health-wise, physical fitness-wise. Exactly. I'd have the best gym in the damn valley. I'm telling yes. you right now, I would have the best gym in the valley. Yep. You know, I always bragged about Mesa PD SWAT uh, because they literally, like, I would live in your guys' gyms, their SWAT gym, you know. I'd be like, <laughs> I would never leave here. I'd live in your guys' gym. And, and uh, uh, so, you know, it, it, you know, it's it's because it, that all helps. It helps with the mental health. Right. You know, and, and they should like be that. allowed to work out at least an hour shift. Yeah. Something, because again, there's so many demands, and especially the groups now, being held over, working extra jobs. And it's not about buying, not for, there probably are a few, but most of them, it's not about buying, you know, mountain houses and beach houses and boats and toys and stuff. Paying bills. As much as it is paying bills and filling the gap. Because everybody's so short staffed, you got to have people out there. I worked a lot of those slurry seal jobs when we were rookies, freaking trying to pay bills, being a new cop. Ed, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> we weren't making much brand oh, new. No. And so, working out to me as part of the shift should be part of it. Yeah. Now, this getting into these, I forgot what they call them now, but like the quiet rooms and oh, yeah. I, that, that I'm not 100% certain about. Um, but, you know, I guess if that helps somebody. <laughs> well, I think there's. The real purpose of that quiet room was you get off shift, but you have court and like three hours, you know, three, four hours later, True. you could go relax for, you know. Where well, it's and I'll tell you a side story for that. We wanted to, we wanted it to be like back east, like the PDs, like Chicago, Detroit or NYPD where they at. We want, when they first come up with that, they call them quiet room now, but whatever it is there at Tempe, I don't know if that's what I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. We actually wanted a room that had like a bed in it, like bunks in it, right, where right, right. guys, if it, it for exactly what Tom was saying, the guys like me that were freaking working midnights and then getting off, because I worked 19 years, I worked late night shifts, you know, until I, you know, um, went to narcotics, but uh, uh, in patrol and stuff and uh, in the canine, but we actually wanted like rooms where we could go and, you know, you, you, you 
the, the, the room was a trade-off. You know, they're not going to budge <laughs> for everything. They were like, well, you know, it's like they didn't want they didn't want to give a guy a reason to be sleeping in the thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's not like if if you catch them sleeping on the job, you deal with it. You know, but sure. if they're after work, who cares? You know, and and that would make sense because right. again, and again, this is something I don't think that the non-law enforcement world understands that when you're in court, a lot of times that's your off day. That's not even your scheduled time to work. No. This, this is just time. They never scared you, right? You know, you get off at seven. You ain't got no court at seven. It's always at nine or 10 or 11. So you're like, right. oh, what am I going to do for three hours? Because I know, man, if I go down hard, I might not wake up to that alarm. <laughs> and then there's a part. Then there's and then, a part. And then, I'm getting, then I get yeah. hammered for that. Yeah. I'm getting dinged. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that might be the reason that you have to go to court, traffic court now because I hated going to traffic court. I would just blow it off, man. And then they're like, okay, you got to go to traffic court now. We're going to write you up. So I might be, I'm not the only one. I might be one of those guys. <laughs> and for those who got tickets on occasion, we were praying you didn't show up. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I always tell people, I, my wife, like I says on the job, always gave me a hard time because she says, you can't write, you know, because you drive like crap. So you can't write people. I said, the only tickets I write are no registration, no insurance, no uh, no driver's license. I said, because I got to have them, they got to have them. But I was always looking for dope. So I was always like, yeah. Sure. And I wouldn't do Rex because everybody, Tom's known her a long time, so he he liked it. I didn't. I wouldn't do Rex because everybody would fights a ticket in a Rex. So oh, yeah. I'd always do DUIs on my squad. I'm like, I'll do your DUIs, you take my Rex. I'm like, no, I I could do a DUI in 45 minutes and be out of there. And none of those people are ever going yeah. to court, hardly. A, a real bartering system. Oh, here that's right. <laughs> I hear somebody get DUI, I would go, hey, I'm, I'm 17 your way, I'll take it. And they're like, okay, we'll wait for you. Don't do anything. Don't wait for me to get there. Yep. Because they heard me get sent to a wreck. They better take it. That's I'm like, <laughs> Well, Chuck, we have really enjoyed having you on. I'm glad you and had me. It was, it was awesome. Well, I'm I think sure. you guys are doing a great job. I Keep at it. You know, keep pecking away at them, you know, in the academies and stuff. Because yes. that's where it's got to start. You know, it's like at home. I always say, you know, all this crap we're having with the world would be a better place than Kids got to spank it on the bottom once in a while at home, or parents yes. or parents are not their friends. But That's yes. the key. Parents are parents. And, and, and not, not be your friend. Yes. And uh, uh, same thing with the academy. We just got to, we got to start them young, you know. We do. And, and right there saying, hey, let's not ask for help. Because I'm going to tell you, this last job, I had a job I had with Tier, and it was a real eye opener working with guys that were, and I worked with the CEO of the company. Uh, Chris Van Sant was, you know, 25 year Delta Force guy, and uh, guys you know, seeing more combat than, you know, uh, him and that group. And it's amazing how humble those guys are, but yes. they're big time proponents of mental health and stuff like that with that unit. And it was really interesting to see how they work together and helped each other and stuff like that. And he's still involved. I still see him post stuff on follow. Even though I'm the, he's not my boss anymore. I still follow him on Instagram and he, you know, he's doing podcasts talking about them, you know, mental health wellness and stuff like that too. So, uh, you know, even there, you know, like I said, when you see guys like that, that, you know, have seen something that none of us will ever see. Sure. And that group of people, you know, that special ops, you know, a, a group, you know, it, it, if they're worried about it, they, I mean, we should really be taking a serious yeah. hard look at it and, and, and dealing with it. So, well, and if there are officers out there that are listening, this isn't just about shootings. No, this is about the day-to-day -day cumulative. You can only see so many children suffering or dead or whatever it is that you're exposed to it's different for everybody well and i heard about that last case with the mom that killed both her kids you know right. and the way it happened the way it went down and uh i we were talking about this me and mike Cook, he goes to the gym that i coach at and uh i said i probably would have quit i absolutely mm -hmm. probably would that would probably been it i'd have pulled the plug if yeah. i had to walk into the scene and t i heard tyler walkers did an amazing job at that and i said if i'd have been the guy probably walking in the scene i'd probably been done i'd have hung it up I'd yeah. been like, that's hard done. That's evil. That's evil beyond comparison, right. comprehension. I said, I, I don't, I, I don't get it. I, you know, so I, I said, I seen a lot of awful things. I never saw that. I said, <laughs> but I said, probably if I had a good been on that scene, I might've been done. I said, that had been something that could probably push me over the edge right. sure. to hang it up. And be yeah, like, okay, just to say, this is enough. This is it. I've seen a mom could do that to her kids. I'd be like out. And you know, it's important for you guys to get out there and say, it's okay to get help. Because again, they can hear it from me all day long. And they're going to look at it from, yeah, well, that's because that's what she does. But the reality is, is they need to know it's okay. And right. they're going to hear that a lot faster from you guys than they will me. And I like to say to one other thing, it's, it's, it's incumbent on the bosses to pay yes. attention. Yes. And I, as a boss, one of the things I always told my guys was, is my job to take care of you. And I'm going to do everything in my power to take care of you. And, and you know, we want them to take care of themselves. But as a boss, you have to uh, take care of your people. Yes. And, 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 you know... Just have to be aware of what they're doing exactly. and see when they're starting to fall down. Right. And and, and I noticed it. And like I said, I keep bringing the last shooting I was involved in or the incident with the warrant. I, you know, I saw both of those guys taking a turn for the worse. And I was like, you know, I went right to my lieutenant. I was like, 
we need to we need to get these guys in contact with you know somebody and start talking you know they had already had like their initial and stuff but they weren't getting better right right and they did they got better and uh uh but uh we definitely need to uh as a boss you need to pay attention to your people and see what's going exactly. on because they're going to change you'll, you'll see the changes you'll there will see be a change. there will be a change in their behavior and their attitude and Absolutely. their temper and that kind of stuff and that's what i saw and uh yeah, we actually teach a supervisor's class called that's, that's awesome. Why Good Cops Make Quote Bad Close Quote Decisions. Because again, you can't just suddenly go, oh, well, you know, he just became stupid. I actually had a chief tell me that one time. <laughs> he said, well, he just, he's just stupid. And I said, well, why are you hiring stupid people? Right. Well, he wasn't stupid when we hired him. And I went, so did you make him that way in the academy or what? Because if that's the case, you need to get everybody out of that academy <laughs> and get new people. Yeah. And so they, but they need to know the early warning signs. And that's what we teach. Yep. The, the things that are episodic before it hits chronic, because nobody can afford to discipline or terminate these days. Right. And it, and, it, and it's even with the bad cops, you know, we always, you know, focus yes. on the 1% or whatever. Right. Bad cop. And me and Tom will tell you, there've been guys, we've had a couple in our career where there's been a couple of real like bad cops where they got, we ended up arresting our own. Mm-hmm. But there were freaking signs, if you think about it. There right. were signs for both of those guys, Always. you know. And, uh, yes, and there was. Names out of, there were obviously signs that a boss should have picked up on. The yes. boss should have been like, okay, that's not right. But yeah, it, it, something's it going on here. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't. It was an outside entity that brought it to the PD's attention, you know. Yeah. And now it's gone to, you know, it's still, it, you know, it worked out. They got arrested and they were gone off the job. But it, it, that's what I'm saying. Boss, whether it be good or bad, they should know something's going on. Whether the guy's have mental health issues or he's a criminal or whatever. It's there. You just right. gotta look. And uh, sometimes I think boss are like parents, and I say this all the time. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm your boss, you know. And yes. I'm gonna talk to you like you're probably not used to being talked to. So it's <laughs> well, really. There's. I bet there's not a situation in a law enforcement agency where an officer has suddenly quit or is drinking too much or something that people aren't in that department going, "Yeah, man, I saw that coming." Oh, yeah. Yep. And you're like. And you didn't do anything. Nope. Good nope. plan. That yeah. works out really well for everybody. No. Nope. Because the most valuable people you've got are your employees. Look at the money that is pumped into yeah. training, and then you just let them fall completely yep. apart. Uh, you know, I, you, you men take good care of your cars usually, <laughs> and it just is amazing to me that the concept of taking care of your people wouldn't kind of translate nope. between the two lines nope. there. Yeah. <laughs> But again, we thank you for your time and your anytime. expertise, and I'm sure we'll have you back on. Yeah, anytime. Um, so, Tom, you did good. Look at you here as a new. Well, how could I go wrong? I, 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 I knew who I was inviting here. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> we, go, we go back way back. <laughs> well, and the exciting part is we can announce who's going to be in the next podcast, and that's Sheriff that's right. Mark Lamb from Pinell nice. County here in Arizona. I know Mark. Good man. Yes. And, Matt um, Thomas is second. Another good guy. And yes. certainly not uh, not politically correct by any stretch of the <laughs> imagination, which is why we're so excited to have him here. I've known yeah. Mark a few years, and he uh, says it like it is, and he doesn't worry about whose feelings he's going to hurt. And good man. So I'm sure we'll hear a lot about the border situation and things going on in law enforcement. And so uh, for those of you listening, please stay tuned for next week's show with Sheriff Mark Lamb. And again, Chuck, thank you. We'll have you you. back. And Tom, you're settling in nicely. I'm just real (laughs) excited that you actually showed up for the second one. Well, you know, I I still feel like there's a noose around my neck from you. So, (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. We're working on letting you off the leash. I'm just helping him watch that record button. I'm like, it went off last time. (laughs) (laughs) And again, thank you for listening.